Lords, my ladies, and everybody else here not sitting on a cushion. Today, today, you find yourselves equals. Hello and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Today is Monday, July 27th. On the show today, we're going to be talking about knights and guilds and Sir Lancelot. But first, our Planet Money indicator. The indicator is... Alex, I honestly think this is the most exciting indicator we've ever had on Planet Money podcast. All right. And we've had some exciting indicators. That's true. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. 31.57. I can't believe it. 31.57. That is a huge relief. It is a huge relief. You sound a little disingenuous, but it really is. (laughs) This really is a big deal. This is the TED spread. And remember, Alex, back when we started the podcast back in September and October, we were using the TED spread. Remember, it seems like yesterday. Right. The TED spread was was tripping off our lips every every single day. And why is that? Well, the TED spread is a way of measuring how basically how freaked out the global economy is. It, basically, it measures how much more it costs to borrow dollars from European banks than it costs to borrow from the U.S. government. And that sounds sort of complicated. But the bigger the number is, the more people are worried that a bank might, might not be able to pay back the money that they've borrowed. So in other words, you're, you're, the, the higher that number is, the more people are worried about the health of banks, basically. It, it measures how much big banks trust each other. It's a way to just look at one number and know, boy, banks really don't trust each other. And we have certainly learned in the last few months that having big banks trusting each other turns out to be like the bedrock, the basis of our entire global economy. Right. And back in September, October, the TED spread was way up above 400 basis points or 4%. And that's just a huge, huge number. And now it's way down way more than a tenth down to 31 basis points. That means less than one-third of a percent. Nothing. That tells us banks are beginning to really trust each other again. Right, partly because banks are actually healthier, uh, but also partly because governments around the world have demonstrated that they're going to back up these big banks. They're not going to let them fail. Right, and until this is, I don't know, what do you call it, like a clean number, a non-governmentally intervened number? A TED spread without an asterisk next next to it. Right, exactly. A non-steroid TED spread. (laughs) We are still in a financial crisis. I mean, basically, we all know that if the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world pulled out some of their support of different banks, that TED spread would hurtle upwards instantaneously. But it does tell us that at least the government actions are having an effect. Absolutely. Right. So today on the podcast, Adam, we're going to move back in time, long before there was a number called the TED spread, long before there were international debt markets, long before there was the concept of international, uh, before there were banks, before there was economics as a profession, but there were still economies. Right. And, And actually, today's podcast comes out of one of my favorite things, which is Have you listened to any of these teaching company lectures? I think I should make very clear here because I'm about to sing their praises. This is not a paid advertisement. I have no (laughs) formal plan. Money has no formal relationship with the teaching company. I don't know anyone there. 
Although I think you have to just say this is an unpaid advertisement because I'm going to talk about how awesome they are. Right. There are all these lectures where they get some really good professor to just give a lecture on tape about some cool subject. And the one I've been obsessed with lately is about the Middle Ages. Uh, and uh, listening to it while walking around the city, riding the subway, I heard a bunch of things that seemed like people on the Planet Money podcast would find interesting. I thought you, Alex, would find them interesting. So I called the professor. His name's Philip Dayleader. He's the chair of history at the College of William and Mary. I asked him to go into a studio and talk to us about the economics of a village in the Middle Ages. And he said, all right, let's go back to central France in the 12th and 13th century. All right. Sounds awesome. Let's go. All right, Alex. There, there is one condition for our journey. Uh, okay. What is it? I would like you to be a peasant. <laughs> I see. Is this – are you so insecure that in all of our radio dramas you have to put me in some sort of position of, of uh, you know, subservience to you? Is that the way it is? Yes. Fine. That is exactly the way it is. Fine. And I do feel better, by the way. It okay. does make me feel really good that you are weak and I am strong. It's sad, but fine. If it helps, uh, go ahead. Be the king. No, no, no. Not the king. That's the interesting thing. Uh, we're in the 12th and 13th century. Kings are not as big a factor in most local economies. Uh, Day Leader explains that life is very local and it's all about the local knight. The king is far away in Paris or something. And you, the local peasant, mm -hmm. you you don't even think about the king. You have probably never gone more than like 10 or so miles from the house you were born in. And most of the stuff you produce, the agricultural stuff or other stuff, it much of it goes into the hands of others. And not the greedy king or the central government. Exactly right. Not them. This is way before there's like a nationwide royal taxation. Philip Dayleader says that the main people collecting money at this time, the main people collecting from the peasants, me. people like you, the main people doing the collecting were people like me, the knights. Mostly you're paying it to, to local knights and local castellans, individuals who own castles and who in return for theoretically protecting you uh, have the right uh, to levy exactions on you that resemble taxes, although uh, they're often levied arbitrarily. You can pay random amounts of money at any time that the local knight or castellan demands it. And you have to pay. You have to. Uh, you have to pay that. And often there'll be multiple knights in the neighborhood who are uh, who are levying these exactions on you, fining you for various various crimes that you've you've committed. Uh, so the burden of of payment is heavy, but it goes to local strongmen rather than to uh, to a king living in far off Paris. Now you grew up in New York, I know, like I did, and this yes. sounds an awful lot like those neighborhoods in New York where. <laughs> You know, the mob got a piece of everybody's business. Even Greenwich Village, where I grew up, uh, my understanding is yes. just about every business had to pay. It sounds more like that. I mean, protection is really in quotes. You're, pro you're paying protection yes. so that that person doesn't kill you. They're not protecting you from someone else. That, that's exactly right. We tend to think of medieval knights in terms of chivalry and chivalric behavior, that they're supposed to be protectors of the, of the weak. The reason chivalric literature develops is because knights were not protecting the weak. They were extorting from, from the weak and chivalric heroes like Lancelot are held up as, as models uh, for knights to, to emulate when the reality is that, that knights were thugs and because they are encased in armor when they go out of their castles, they're encased in stone when they are within their castles, there's really nothing that a non-knight can do to protect himself or herself against uh, against knights uh, when they when they come to a village and 
ask you to hand over whatever you happen to to possess at that time. So it's a, it's it's a fairly brutal situation. So so you're a thug and I'm a poor helpless uh, peasant who you're picking out all the time. This is an easy 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 radio drama to act in. I gotta say, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like our life. <laughs> That's not fair. No, it's not true. You're at giving all. the wrong impression. I am. So, so like this, all this thing that we hear about chivalrous knights and all that sort of stuff—that's just all a big myth. Yeah, it was specifically created. It, it, it was like a medieval version of the Stop the Violence campaign <laughs> by the Trappist monk KRS one. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, all right. So, this is part of the economy of the. What, what is called the High Middle Ages, the 12th, 13th century. There's, you have this thuggish knight who kind of shows up every once in a while and just steals your stuff arbitrarily. Um, he calls it a tax. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, uh, just really just to steal, basically. Right. Right. And, yeah. then, and that's not all. The, the, the knight would also say to peasants like you, uh, hey, you got to work for me. You got to do work on my land. You got to, you know, you, you got to farm my my land. Maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks every year. You have to just basically be an indentured servant. Right. So my life, you're making my life really suck because I have to pay you and I also have to work for you for free. Um, but I do have one out, which is that I can flee to a city or a town um, where I might get a little bit more of protection. And 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 you know that I can flee, so that keeps you from treating me too badly. Yeah, and if you get to a city and you're able to stay there, generally the time frame was one year and one day specifically, 366 days, then you are no longer obligated to whatever night you fled from. You are just a free man living in the city. And also, life was way more laid back, he says, than it is now. People just weren't working all that often. They didn't have like a nine-to-five job. They wouldn't even understand the idea of just working all day. You might work just a couple days a week. Whenever your customers showed up, then you'd work. And if they didn't show up, you wouldn't work. So I could basically – that doesn't sound that bad at all. So I can basically work as much as I want. If I want to work really hard, really build my business, I can do that. Or if I just want to loaf around, that's OK too? No, actually, you can only loaf around. <laughs> this is – one of the day leader says this is one of the biggest differences between life in a medieval village and life now, the guild system, which is I used to think, oh, guild system, that's just like unions. Not at all. It's much more all-encompassing. The purpose of the guild system was to eliminate competition. It is there to benefit producers at the expense of, of consumers, and it limits, regu- it limits competition by forbidding advertising, for example, by limiting the number of hours that anyone can work in a given day by specifically defining the techniques that each craftsman must follow. And it squelches innovation. If you come up with a faster way to make shoes or a cheaper way to make shoes and the guild finds that you're doing it, they they will forbid you to to practice this craft anymore because that would give you an unfair advantage over, over the other shoemakers and you'd put them out of business eventually. And this is something that I find really Interesting. So, so if if we look at European history, something happens in the late 1700s, early 1800s that mm-hmm. that creates the conditions for entrepreneurial investment and and technological investment. And suddenly, right. unbelievably rapidly, um, workers become much more productive. At least some workers become far more wealthy. Right. Uh, many don't, but 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 some do. This is not happening in the world we're describing in the 12th and 13th century, right? Or do you no, see it, any entrepreneurship and anything we'd recognize as, as entrepreneurship? You do see it. 
And the reason why the guilds exist is precisely to stop it from from getting the, the upper hand. And if there hadn't been individuals who were willing to experiment uh, with new production techniques, then there would have been no need for guilds to exist. It's not really until the 14th and 15th centuries, though, that you start to see uh, the guild system begin to break down. And it begins to break down in large part because of the Black Death and the loss of one out of three to one out of two Europeans and the loss of a four-year, in a four-year period. And, and that massive die-off and caused an economic crisis that allowed merchants who had capital available to them to, to begin to buy out artisans. Essentially, they begin to turn them into wage laborers. Uh, they buy their tools. They buy their shops. They buy their raw materials. They start to sell the, the finished product. And so the groundwork for that for that uh, later period of, of massive experimentation in the 1700s and 1800s is, is really laid back in the 1400s and 1500s. Wow. So if there had not been the Black Death, we wouldn't have the modern world that we live in today? I, it certainly is a boon to the merchant class in terms of its relationship to uh, to those who are producing the goods that they that they sell and that uh the, the, and it's this mercantile class that later on will begin to to experiment with agricultural techniques in in the uh, in the 18th 18th century so you can draw a connection of sorts there so but going back to our period to the 12th and 13th mm-hmm. century the 1100s and 1200s so if i'm a shoemaker mm-hmm. am i just making shoes, like I have size 12 shoes, size 8 shoes, whatever, and I'm just making a bunch of shoes? Is um... Yes. You make the, the specialization of labor in the 12th and 13th centuries is something that's frowned on uh, by guilds because they see that will lead to skill dilution and to, to the loss of social status and economic clout. If you're a shoemaker, you make the whole shoe. Uh, you have to you, you make the soles, you, you make the tongue, you make the, the eyelets if they have them. You have you make the entire product from from beginning to end, and you make to order. More often than not, you sit in your shop and you, you don't build shoes on spec. You wait till somebody places an order, and then you make the shoe, which helps to account for the very irregular work patterns. For nobody might walk in for four days, so for four days you just sit and and do nothing. But again, the the guilds regulate membership very closely. They set a number of shoemakers. There will be 12 shoemakers in this town. And they do that to prevent a glut of production, which would, which would hurt the, the producers. And so if, if you're number 13 and you're trying to make shoes and they find you're trying to, to make shoes, they will, they will knock your house down and they will take your tools and, and get rid of them and, and try to have you thrown out of, out of the town. Really? And and would the shoemaker guild side up with the glazier guild and the stool or the woodworker guild or whatever? Would they, would they work together to beat up on this rogue under black market shoemaker? More often than not, no. And one of the one of the defining characteristics of the guild system is its intense localization. Even within a town, the guilds there's a pecking order in which some guilds are considered more prestigious than others, and this is made manifest in urban festivals where the guilds will all march in a specific order that is often laid down in the town town's laws. And rivalry 
between these guilds was often intense. When members of one guild met members of another guild in the street, they'd probably wind up brawling with, with one another. If you met members of the Shoemaker's Guild from the neighboring town, you'd probably brawl with them as, as well. And Even though I'm a shoemaker in a Shoemaker's that's Guild. Right. <laughs> the idea of workers of the world unite is not one that anyone would have thought of in the 12th and 13th centuries. And the reason why that phrase is so powerful in part is because it flies in the face of a much older pre-modern tradition uh, in which the workers of the world brawled with with one another and were intensely proud of their own town and of their own guild within that town to the exclusion of ties to, to other guilds and to other places. So thinking about this economically, what, what I'm finding confusing is th- there is so much money left on the table. I mean, we now know mm-hmm. with the benefit of hindsight that yes. if the shoemakers or the cloth makers or whoever else got together and said, hey, guys, forget this controlling our production. Right. Let's make as much as we possibly can. Let's flood the market. We'll make a lot less on each one, but we'll mm-hmm. sell a lot more units. People will not right. buy one pair of shoes every 10 years. They'll buy one pair of shoes every season yes. or every few months. Eventually, we can start selling it to those neighboring towns and even to other countries, and we'll right. all be much richer. Yes. And according to you know a basic principle of modern economics is if there's a situation where everybody could be made much richer, mm-hmm. someone will think of it and someone will take advantage of it. Right. Why? So on the one hand, I can see why each guild member doesn't want any other guild member to do that. But mm-hmm. but why do they? Why didn't anybody think of this? You know, when when a few hundred years later, everybody's thinking about this. Right. Well. Two factors, uh, one cultural and the other technological. The cultural one is that, uh, that, that the Christian milieu of the time regards money-making as a sordid activity. You know, the usurers, those who lend money at interest, are considered among the worst sinners out there. And uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century says there's something sordid about, about selling and buying goods that it's it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to, to enter heaven. So you have these strong cultural constraints working against trying to amass as much wealth as possible. The technological problem is transportation costs. The idea of mass producing goods and then flooding markets with them and and trying to, to maximize profits by having reached in profit margins but large number of sales, it's not possible when overland transportation is as expensive as it was in the 12th and 13th centuries, you couldn't move grain profitably over land probably more than 40 or 50 miles. At that point, it was just too expensive. And many times there were famines in the 12th and 13th century where there was plenty of food 50 miles away, but it cost too much to load up carts and move it overland. The only economical way to, to move goods was by water during the Middle Ages. And until those transportation problems were overcome, it really, I think, was was not possible to conceive of a world where instead of trying to to make a few sales and make as much profit on those few sales and abandon that for a world where you're just going to make a large number of sales and a small amount of profit on each one. I see. Because Adam Smith wrote about how there will be special, specialization to the extent of the size of the market. Right. And and, and the the market was effectively... 50 miles or even less. Yes, and, and it when, is intensely local. And when you do see goods being shipped long distances, it's 
things that have huge value for the weight, right? Spices. And- Precisely. That's right. For, uh, even cloth, which is Europe's main export to the rest of the world in the 12th and 13th century, even cloth is starting to, to – you've reached the limit of what it's economically profitable to, to ship considering the, the, the value versus, versus the weight. And certainly medieval merchants, they wanted to deal in items such as pepper and, and spices that, that weighed very little and that were, were quite valuable. It's really, it's really fascinating. Like so, so like basically, if I'm in a guild, I'm just sort of like I'm always fighting with somebody. It's basically the what I got from that. I'm either fighting with you, the knight, or I'm fighting with other people in in different guilds, or I'm fighting with other people in my same guild from a different town. It's sort of like it's a lot of fighting. It's a lot of fighting, and it's a lot of stuff that has to happen before the preconditions are there for the industrial revolution and for the creation of the modern world that we live in, which I I learned a lot from him about that. I had never thought about just simply transportation costs. You can't really have an industrial revolution until you have roads, have roads and ships <laughs> right. that can cheaply go around the world. Right, right. Um, so uh, a couple more strikes to to my, my understanding of what it's like to live in the Middle Ages. I will say we're going to have him on again to talk about life in the Middle Ages versus life in the industrial revolution. And... Ways in which certainly for the early days of the Industrial Revolution, for the average person, it might have been a huge step backwards, not a step forwards. Although Dayleader does say he would never in a million years want to live in the Middle Ages if he had to exchange his life now. Right. It's <laughs> right. much tougher. And he would know. Right. Um, so we'll have more of that conversation on our upcoming uh, podcast. Thank you to Philip Dayleader, professor of history at the College of William and Mary. Um, we'll link to his teaching company lectures on our blog, npr.org slash money. I highly recommend it. And uh, please do go to our blog at, and the rest of npr.org. Today is the first day of our new look, our relaunch site. It's, I, I think it's much better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and keep sending us your questions and letters to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. Fill a man's soul. Hey!